0: All right, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods, episode 41. I'm your host, Dan Blewett. And today we're going to talk about pitching control and pitching command. So often these two terms are are used interchangeably, but I'm going to give you a definition right here for you. So pitching control is the ability to throw strikes when you need them. And obviously as a pitcher, you always need them, but pitching control is the ability to throw the ball in the strike zone reliably without walking too many hitters. Pitching command is the ability to hit your spot a very high percentage of the time relative to other pitchers. So, you know, I think hitting, I think the stat was hitting your spot within like four inches of mitt happens about 20% of the time in the majors. So if that is average command for the major leagues, then maybe you hit your spot 30% of the time or 35% of the time. I'm not sure what the, what the best guys like Kershaw and, and Kluber do, but, that's the difference between command and control. They're both C words. Uh, you know, they're just kind of used as, you know, as synonyms, but they're different. They're very different. So I'll use myself an exa- as an example. My, one of my best seasons, I had 50 innings and 12 walks and almost, I think I had 59 strikeouts. So my strikeout to walk ratio was about five to one, which is good. And I only walked about two batters for nine innings. So, that's a good strikeout, or a, it's a good strikeout-to-walk ratio, but it's also a good walk-per-nine-innings ratio. So in the big leagues, three walks per nine innings is about average. If you walk more than that, you're, you're basically just below average control for the majors. And if you walk four or, or above, you start to have very difficult time keeping your ERA down and giving your team a chance to win. So the standards for control in general are very high at the highest level, as you would expect. The strike zone is also very small, so achieving a you know three three walks per nine innings is a much more um, difficult task at that level than it would be in say you know even the minor leagues or in college or in high school or in amateur baseball, youth baseball. So you know the strike zone, it's very very small and the standards are very very high at uh, at higher levels. And the other thing that's high that affects your command is that hitters are extremely disciplined and it's frustrating when they take pitches that are one baseball off the plate and you're like, man, why don't you just swing at that? But they know the strike zone so well that they also don't help you by swinging at more, uh, balls and converting those balls into strikes. So obviously when a major league pitcher and the major league strike rate is about 65%, when, you know, and all, all pitches are factored into that. So this is the high fastball that's clearly a ball they swing at this is the curveball in the dirt that they swing at those all go into that 65 uh you know overall strike rate in the majors so when you factor into all that stuff and of course major league pitchers throw the ball intentionally out of the zone breaking out of the zone more often than amateur pitchers i think do but my point is that the the what's the word here the standard for command is extremely high the standard for control also gets much higher as you go up in levels and most players don't have even good enough control to be as effective as they want to be so back to myself as an example i had above average stuff so i had some deception on my fastball i had a good spin on my fastball and i threw a little bit harder than average and i could challenge guys down the middle of the plate and go in on them and elevate my fastball with relative impunity I got good results from doing that I didn't have to hit my spots to survive so when I was kind of feeling myself you know about oh man I've only walked like eight hitters you know and the seasons almost over uh, you know my buddy was quick to say look you know you have good control you know we can rely on you to throw strikes you know you don't walk guys you know you challenge them all that stuff but you're not a command guy like that's not who you are you don't have command you miss your spots too often and you miss them by too much but you miss them in places that helps you still get out. So like you miss up and you miss in, he's like guys that have real command, they hit their spots way, way more than you do. And they hit harder spots. You know, they hit out of third, the outer corner of the plate. And when they miss, they miss off the plate. Unlike you, you miss over the plate a little more than they do, which is, which was all true. So, you know, I didn't love hearing that, but I always appreciated honesty, you know, when it was, you know, given sent my way. So there's a difference between control and command. And we need to figure out number one, because it's a big pain point for parents and players and coaches. Why does my son walk so many hitters? How can I help him improve his command? I know his pitching mechanics are pretty good, or he's been doing a lot of pitching lessons and he's always pretty much on the right track, but he still doesn't throw enough strikes. Why doesn't he throw enough strikes and how can I help him improve his command? And it's a really tough question because human beings are not robots. So when the pitching machine is off, you just loosen the screw and then you adjust it a little bit, you tighten it, you check it. Okay. Now it's thrown in the strike zone. Human beings aren't that way. It's not just pitching mechanics. There's a lot of factors that are extremely enigmatic. I think command is one of the most enigmatic things out there. Why does one little kid who doesn't have better mechanics than the next little kid, when you give him the ball, just go out there and just pound the strike zone, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why do some of the guys in the big leagues with wackier mechanics, like Madison Bumgarner, Chris Sale, um, who are some others, i got to think. But there doesn't seem to be a correlation between how pretty your mechanics look and how many strikes you throw, right? There's so many outliers where guys do weird things. They still get to the big mechanical checkpoints, just like everyone else, but their arms and legs are flying all over the place. Eyes are in different places. Legs are in different places, but yet they – pound the strike zone and they have extremely good command at even the highest level of baseball so clearly i think we'd all agree there's a huge mental connection to your command that's i think i think everyone it well on one hand it's often very undervalued the mental aspect of of baseball especially pitching because we have such such a gap between between pitches Uh, and one of the books that i recently completed there. uh I think the quote was between for every, uh was it? For every stimuli, there is a gap between stimuli and your response to it. And that gap is kind of what like makes us human and makes us responsible for our choices. So pitchers, they throw a pitch, they then get 12 seconds, 15 seconds to think about everything they want to in the world and how much it's going to suck. If this hitter drives a double into the gap, And how embarrassed they are gonna be if they walk in this run and how fearful fearful they are that they won't get a win for their team how unhappy their mom or dad's gonna be if they don't pitch well today how bad their arm feels how tired they're getting all this stuff right there's so much time to fill that gap with crud between each pitch and so the mental half is a huge thing but uh let's talk about a couple things and I'm going to give you my take on how we can improve pitching uh pitching control, pitching command and really what parents and coaches and players out there should be trying to do if they want to improve their strike throwing ability. So number 1, we need to talk about margin for error. So if you are trying to hit the dartboard Say I would give you 10 dollars, not just not for hitting a bull'seye, but just for hitting the dartboard in general. You could hit any spot, you could hit the 13, the double 20, whatever. Anywhere on a dartboard. Where would you aim? You would still aim for the center of the dartboard, right? You'd still aim for the bull'seye, even though hitting the bull'seye isn't really your goal at all, right? You do that just because it gives you more margin for error. You can miss equally in all directions, right? You can miss low, you can miss high, you can miss left, you can miss right. The equal 10 or 12 inches of i don't know what the circumference of a dartboard is on all sides to still do the job and get your ten dollar paycheck right no sane person would aim to the edge of the dartboard because the farther they aim to one side now all their misses shift over that way and now a miss that would have otherwise hit the dartboard now hits the wall and they don't get paid so this is a common problem that it's probably the easiest thing pitchers can do if they want to improve their command is rethink the way that they're using margin for error for or against their advantage. So in my online course, Ace of the Staff, I talk about this in a number of different lectures, and I have a lot of different uh, visual aids. I have a lot of different graphics showing hitters with bullseyes and all this different stuff. Because it's important to understand that every pitcher has a grouping, all right? Just like a marksman, if you're an archer or a marksman or whatever, you're shooting, you know, your arrows down, down range and, A great marksman has a small grouping, right? They might shoot every one of 10, 10 bullets right within a little five inch circle, right? That five inches is their grouping, but an amateur, you know, if you took me to the gun range, uh, my grouping would be multiple feet. You know, you'd probably have to dig my bullets out of the hill or whatever. But, you know, so my grouping might be three feet. Whereas a, a marksman's might be six inches. So with your grouping, you have to then ask yourself, how far can I really aim to the edges before I start to lose a significant amount of my strikes? So for most young pitchers, their grouping is the entire size of the strike zone. Okay. So they're aiming for the middle of the plate most of the time. Cause that's where their eyes go. Even when the catcher moves, they kind of aim for the middle of the plate. So say they throw a hundred pitches they're in general. Now understand that pitchers all have sort of a little unique pattern of misses. You know, I would always miss more arm side. I had a tough time getting to my glove side. Everyone has a sort of unique pattern of misses and the way they get off when they get tired and all that sort of stuff. So it won't be exactly equal, but in general, if you threw hundred pitches, all right down the middle of the plate, you'd have a pretty even distribution of misses. You'd have maybe 25 on the left side of the plate, 25 on the top side, 25 below the target, 25 to the right of the target. And they'd be all at all different angles in between. Right. Uh, and so if you then take that grouping, say we get 65 strikes out of that grouping, where we aimed on the middle and we shift that entire grouping to the outside third of the plate so the center of the mitt is over the outside third of the plate if we slice the plate into three three slices now we're going to lose a significant amount of those strikes that were well that of those pitches that were previously called strikes all the ones that were just inside the plate all the ones that were on that outer third slice of the plate and the middle third slice of the plate they're all going to move off the plate now so if we had 65 strikes before and now we only have 40 strikes say we'll just say that's the number so our our command our control has gone down significantly just because we chose a a poor margin for error based on our unique grouping right so then you have say you have a guy like clayton kershaw who walks 1.5 batters per nine innings in the major leagues which is unbelievable uh you take him and his grouping is much 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 smaller right so when he aims down the middle, he hits within say, let's say six, a six inch circle most of the time. So he throws a hundred pitches and there's 65 within a, a six inch circle. That's probably unreasonable, but we'll just say that that's what it is. If you slide that over to the third of the plate, most of those strikes, because it's such a small grouping are still on the plate. And that's what command gives you. It gives you the ability to aim to the periphery of the strike zone and have more of your pitches stay in the strike zone and execute your, your, execute your pitch, hit your spot and still get strikes guys with poor command can't give away margin for error because they end up giving away way too many strikes. And here's, here's the thing. And I, and again, I talked about this a ton in my course, if you had hypothetically three choices, you could throw a pitch right down the middle and it would end up down the middle. So you hit your spot right on the catcher's mitt. Say you could do that on the first pitch. Would you rather throw it right down the middle on the first pitch and hit your spot, throw it right down the middle on an O1 pitch and hit your spot, or throw it right down the middle on a 10 pitch and hit your spot? Which would you not want? Let's not say which one do you want. Which do you not want? Of those three, which one is the most likely to get driven into the gap? O0, O1, or 10? I think everyone who knows anything about baseball would say 10, right? So. Too many pitchers are going too far to the corners of the plate on the first pitch of the at-bat and often on the second pitch of the at-bat and often just in general. And so then I asked them, okay, if you want to go on the outside corner on the first pitch of the at-bat and now you miss, what do you not want to have happen next? Oh, I don't want to go to two o. so now I need to throw a strike, right? Okay, good answer, correct. So now you chose to throw on the outside corner for the first pitch and you missed. And now on the second pitch where he's extra comfortable, he's 1-0, now you have to go over the middle because you don't want to get to 2-0 so again i ask them if you know that on one of these two pitches if you miss you're going to have to throw it over the middle would you rather it be the first pitch or this or the one zero pitch and almost all the time they think about it and they say on the first pitch And i say yeah because look hitters are not that ready to hit on the first pitch they don't smash the ball the ballpark george springer hitting lead off first pitch home runs is just crazy but you know, it's it's not a normal thing where hitters are ready to smash the ball on the first pitch. But however, they are much more likely to smash the ball on a 1-0 pitch, 2-0 pitch, 3-1 pitch, right? So if you're gonna take a chance, if it's just a matter of risk and reward, if you're just sort of playing like a theoretical game of odds and chance, you would take your chance hucking it down the middle on the first pitch rather than the second pitch. Right? It just makes sense. So then, and then here's what we all know and love about pitching we have the concept of expanding the strike zone, right? So that applies sort of equally to hitters and umpires. When you start to hit your mitt, the umpires will start to give you strikes that are close to it, right? So we've all seen it, and we actually did this past weekend. I was behind our pitcher. We had an indoor game at, at Warbird Academy, and I was behind the, the pitcher outside the net calling balls and strikes from just like you know the center field camera point of view. And there were a number of times where pitchers – missed their spot on the entire other side of the plate and it was probably still a strike, to be honest with you. But the catcher had to reach all the way across his body and it was just such an ugly catch. I was like, and I told the pitcher it happened like three or four times towards the end of the game. And I'm like, look man, that's probably a strike, but I just can't call it a strike because I I'm not sure it's a strike because of the way he's catching it and the way it's like he's like his hands yanking him out of the zone. And I'm just like, I just don't know if that's a strike. And it was caught so poorly that I'm not convinced that it was. And you missed your spot by so, so much that I have to call that a ball. Uh, obviously, like if I had stat cast and it said that it was a strike, I would call it a strike. But it made it so uncertain because of how big the miss was that I just like couldn't call that. You kind of got to err on your gut feel or, or at least the side of caution when they missed their spot by that much. But so anyway, when pitchers have such a big grouping they're gonna miss by so much if you aim to the corner of the plate now you're giving away misses by only a couple inches so if you're on the corner of the plate if you miss off the plate by three or four inches that's a ball right that's a ball if it's 0-2 or if it's one and two maybe the umpire gives it to you and maybe the hitter swings at it but it's still a ball and so when we start our, our bats off too far to the periphery of the plate now we're giving away extremely accurate misses to balls whereas we're still missing with we or we can aim over the middle of the plate and have much bigger misses still become strikes so i say look do you want to have your big misses still become strikes and your little misses become balls and they're like no i'm like look here's what we need to do and this is what we do as a organization and i don't care if other teams know this but on the first pitch we're usually aiming down the middle or on one of the halves of the plate and it's not the inner half because inner half is kind of like a, a happy zone for hitters so when we go first pitch or if we're behind the count this catcher's setting up down the middle of the plate not because we want it there but because we want as much margin for error because we know how important it is to get ahead in the count and we want to give a pitcher the best chance he can uh on even counts one one two two three two and three two is an even count and that's because you're equal amounts of maxed out balls and strikes. On one, one, two, two, three, two, we're going halves the plate, and so that realistically just means outer half. Uh, if a guy's crowding the plate, then maybe inner half, but if he's standard, it's probably outer half. Then if we're ahead 0-1-1-2, we go thirds of the plate. So that's the center of the mitt splitting the third, and most catchers don't know what the third looks like. They, they go to the corner. They, they still have a tough time differentiating these small little gradations of the plate, but the outer third is our ahead spot. And that gives us enough margin for error to still get weak contact when we're 0-1-1-2, which is what we want in those counts. But also, we're gonna miss on the corner of the plate, we're gonna miss a ball or two off the plate sometimes, and we're gonna get calls and swings and miss on those when we're farther ahead in the count. So that's when we go inside. When we go inside, we only go inner third or better. We don't go inner half because it's not enough to jam a guy. So when we get ahead, we start to go in or we go away on the thirds. Uh, and then when we get to O2, and this is a common misconception, and this is a big thing, and this is kind of getting a little bit off topic, but we'll go with it anyway. O2 for me is the only time you should hunt for a strikeout because you're so far ahead. It's not going to rack your pitch count up when you're O2. If you hunt for a strikeout, you are going to eliminate all the bloopers, the bleeders, the, the 14 hoppers that find a hole, the swinging bunts, the errors, all that stuff. All right. Batting average of balls in play in the majors is 300. In youth baseball, it's probably at least 400 or 450. That means when the ball is put in play, a hitter reaches base probably 40% of the time. So we're going to take our chance and eliminate that and give you a 0% chance of reaching base by punching you out. So that's why when I ask kids, all right, what do you, what's a strikeout pitch with your fastball? And they say, Oh, on the corners. I say, nah, So is an O2 fastball in the corner, a strikeout pitch sometimes? Sure. If they take it, if they swing at it and they're not very good, they strike out, but we can't count on that outcome, right? If you throw the pitch a fastball in the outside corner, a hitter can hit it. If he, if he's good enough, he can hit that pitch. However, if we elevate our fastball and we have a good enough fastball, if we elevate it to the letters or just a hair above, we're going to get more of a zero sum outcome which is what pitchers look for on o2 or when they're trying for a strikeout and by that i mean we're going to get a ball if he takes it a strikeout if he swings at it we have a very high probability of getting a strikeout on a pitch in that certain location and so for guys that throw breaking stuff when they're o2 when they're trying for a strikeout the goal is always that it breaks completely out of the hitting zone by time the hitter swings at it so that means for me, for curveballs, they break and they hit the point of the plate. My curveball bounces on the point of the plate. For me, that's where it stays a strike the longest before going completely out of the hitting zone where they almost can't possibly hit it. All right. If you bounce it on the plate, a little bit in the front of the plate, that still qualifies, but they start to swing at those a little bit less because they start to look like a ball a little bit earlier. If the catcher can catch it, it's a breaking ball, if he can catch it in the air then a hitter could hit it so it's not quite as good of a pitch obviously there's still tons of strikeouts recorded on those but they're not as certain of outcomes so when you throw a slider you're trying to have it break out of the zone curveball you're trying to have it break out of the zone change up you're trying to have it start at the bottom of the zone and break out of the zone fastball the only one that you can really control and have some well have some amount of control of okay if he swings he's gonna strike out is up elevating fastballs is where you get Hitters and you have more control. Throwing it on the corner of the plate, even if it's a quality pitch, doesn't control the outcome as much as a pitcher. And that's what we're trying to do when we're out to we're trying to control that outcome. So say we miss. Now our object changes. Our objective is now to get weak contact and end the bat as soon as possible. So one and two, we are going to the corner of the plate or the third of the plate. We are throwing a breaking ball that stays that breaks to the corner of the plate that's borderline ball strike that if they take it there's probably punched out on strikes if they swing at it they might strike out some percent of the time and if they hit it they're gonna ground out or pop out almost every time right so it's we know it's a weak contact a called strike or a strikeout outcome with our one two pitch all right so That's how do we go about business? And we do that to control margin for error and give our pitchers the best possible chance of getting ahead in the strike zone. I'm sorry, getting ahead in the count, which can then allow them to do more things. And then when hitters get more defensive, they swing at more stuff. And now our strike percentage increases even more. So when we get hitters to start expanding the zone for us, it's a free, bigger bullseye right? The same, you still get the same $10 dollars for hitting the bullseye, but now my bullseye gets bigger. So it's easier to hit when hitters expand the zone for us, our job, our strike percentage increases. And that's a really important concept to, to, uh, to understand because when you fall behind the count, your bullseye gets smaller hitters, swing less and they swing at better pitches harder. So we get hurt more when we do throw strikes in the middle of the plate and we get, we catch up in the count less because hitters don't help us out as much. So that is a really important strategic understanding. You have to understand how just the pitch calling and the location calling can have a great influence. And I don't know how much, I don't know if this is a 10% swing, but imagine you throw 80 pitches in a game. If you're missing by a little bit because you're too, you're too far on the corners all the time, you might easily lose six, seven strikes a game. I like I think that's a reasonable amount. I think it could be higher if your catcher's really bad and he's dragging stuff out of the zone as well. Good catchers have a big thing a, a big hand in it as well. But say you lose six strikes a game in a start. That's a big deal. That's six oh ones becoming one-os. Or that's six oh ones going to one one instead of 0-2. So we can't discount that. And if you read the book Big Data Baseball, they talk about just how important catching can be and how important Russell Martin was to the pirates in helping to turn kind of a mediocre pitching staff around by framing and giving them extra strikes that were there for the taking if they had a good enough catcher to get those calls all right so that's the big strategic thing that I want to talk about now let's talk a little bit about the physical side of control and command so I took a little heat on this on LinkedIn about two or three weeks ago, and by a little heat, I just mean a guy commented and he was like, dude, you're an idiot. Like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I've never heard this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, clearly you didn't watch the whole video and you didn't really think about it. So number one, I'll get back to being repeatable in a second because I think everyone understands that being repeatable, like being like a pitching machine that always delivers the ball the exact same way every time is basically what good pitchers do, right? If you take a 1,000 photos of Cole Hamels, for example, they're all going to look identical. And if you take a thousand videos of him of one pitch and you overlay them, they're all, almost all going to overlay exactly the same. Pitchers at high levels are extremely repeatable. Even pitchers that aren't that good are very repeatable. The thing that ends up being you know, it ends up coming down to the little window of release at your hand, right? So better pitchers like John Lester have a very small window of release point within only a couple inches. So every pitch, their fingertips are within, you know, a couple inches, like two to four, five, six inches within each other. And the bigger that variation gets, the less strikes we start to throw, the less command we start to have. So I don't think anyone argues against being repeatable, and we'll talk about how you develop that in a little bit. But what I was taking some flack for was – my I have a YouTube video called target alignment, how pitchers actually throw strikes. And I firmly stand behind this when I, I watch tons and tons of bullpens from behind, but mostly from behind the catcher. So I watched some behind the pitcher, but most of them behind the catcher. And as I'm watching a pitcher come down the mound, as he starts to stride. And his glove arm extends and his front foot starts to hit the ground. I have a within the first couple milliseconds of his Rotation towards the plate as he starts to accelerate the ball, I can tell where the ball is going to go in the sort of quadrant of the plate because their first movement, and this is something that I mentioned in my new course, pitching is a compliment the way they, their first movement of acceleration is, is going to determine basically where their arm can get to in the next sort of little phase. And what I mean by that is this, when I see a pitcher stride down the mound and his stride foot hits and his glove arm is still up, if his first movement is his, his glove arm yanking and rotating out to the side, I know one of two things is going to happen. If he's sort of sinking towards me and, and the catcher, the ball is going to come down into the ground. So if he's throwing a curveball and I see that front side start to move down and pull towards the floor, he's going to bounce that curveball 100% of the time. Say they, he's throwing a fastball and he his front side spins open as soon as that foot hits. So his glove arm starts and his chest start to rotate instead of moving towards the catcher i know that fastball is going to be left up and then when i see the three things sort of align which is the front shoulder his eyes so eyes come first eyes lock on the target the front shoulder whether it's fully extended or the elbows pointing to the to the catcher the shoulders are the second thing so when the eyes are on the target and they go away from the target like mine when i lifted my leg my eyes would go away and then they pick the catcher back up but by time it's you know you're You're about to land with your stride foot. Your eyes are going to be on your target for the most part. So when your eyes are on your target and now your glove arm is pointing at your target and then the last piece is your first movement should be the center of your chest pushing towards that, that target. Your chest shouldn't rotate away from it. It shouldn't rotate into the ground. It should rotate toward your front side. It should follow your glove towards the target. And if you see it in action, you'll understand what I mean, because those three things sort of get the rest of the body online towards that target. And then the arm is delivered somewhere in that vicinity. But when I see one of them go off target, so the front side yanks open, the rest of it's going to suffer when the eyes or the head sort of dump out to one side, the rest of it's not going to get there. And even when the first two, the eyes and the shoulder are, are towards their target, if the chest rotates or sinks into the ground or whatever goes somewhere other than sort of moving towards the catcher, I know that the, that next pitch is not going to get where it needs to go. So I, I realize that we're in podcast land. It's a little tougher to describe that, but those three things, eyes, shoulder, chest, I've, I can predict up oh, this is gonna be ball. I, I can see it over and over and over, especially with breaking balls, especially with breaking balls. So, those three things are important and good. And it goes back to being repeatable. Obviously, like if you do those things always the same way, you're always going to be somewhere in the zone, right? And so like, as a high level pitcher, I could do that. And I wasn't having these egregious misses where I'm like yanking my front side out that much, or I'm spiking four curveballs in a row, or I'm spiking a curveball 10 feet in front of the plate. Obviously I've done all those things at various times. And, uh, I had a lot of command issues with my curveball ball, actually in my last bunch of years, but still like your grouping gets smaller when you get better at all that stuff so those two things are really important and i because i answered i wrote i I recorded that video i think six years ago so it's very it's very much young dan in that in that youtube video so if you see it i think i'm like 25 in that video 24 25 and i asked myself okay i understand that being repeatable You know, having a consistent release point, which means that my body, my pitching mechanics mirror each other every single pitch, that they do the exact same thing, same tempo, same rhythm. Everything is repeatable and identical from one pitch to the next. I get that. But I ask myself, when I try to throw a ball inside to a righty, and then I do, and then in my brain, I say, I'm going to throw this pitch on the outside, and the catcher goes over there, and then I do, how in the hell did I just do that? being repeatable doesn't do that right having identical mechanics don't accomplish that they just get you there right they just they set the stage but I'm like what happens when my brain says hey Dan throw the ball to this spot and then throw it to that spot throw it up and then throw it down what actually changes in my delivery to get it there it isn't like just my arm it's not just my hand changing it's everything because my body is delivering my arm and it's delivering my hand. So the body has to do something different. And in my video, I think you see me striding to different spots, but that's just for illustration. You don't stride to different spots. Your foot hits the same spot every time. When you go in, it's just that your center and your eyes, they go to a different spot. So your eyes are on the inside corner of the plate right now. You go through delivery. You land in the same spot you always land. Your shoulders are pointed a little bit more towards the inside part of the plate, but really they're still mostly towards just the middle of, the, of home plate. But it's your center, it's your chest that sort of starts that first movement a little more to that spot, a little more to that side of the plate than to the glove side of the plate. And when you go far on one side, say you go a ball inside and then you throw a pitch on one ball off the plate outside. So you go all the way from one side of the plate to the other you'll start to feel that difference. You'll start to feel that your center of mass, your center, it's not really your center of mass, but really just your, the center of your chest is moving in a slightly different direction from one side than the other. And as I started, I I feel like even now, I can't turn it off. When I play catch with my lessons and I throw them change-ups and I throw them fastballs, I feel every single pitch release off my finger. And it's almost as if there's like a Polaroid camera. And, And understand, I talk about you know, myself as an example, I clearly was not a world-class pitcher. I was a pro pitcher, but I wasn't a, you know, major leaguer. So, Um, but I became very in tune with my body because I was trying to get better my last, you know, four seasons. And I got better based on feel and I went from a pitcher that didn't have very good control to a pitcher that had very good control who could be relied upon to throw strikes. And, I was always trying to refine my ability to feel every pitch. And I learned from some great teammates who were very disciplined and professional that of how I was supposed to throw before in, you know, in pregame, before games. And I watched them work and I watched them do flat rounds and play catch. And I just could tell that every throw that they made was important to them. You know, for me as a guy that only had a couple years of experience under my belt, moving up to the Atlantic League where all my teammates now had like 10 years of pro experience and major league time. I watched how they worked and I just watched how important their pregame catch was. I mean, these were guys that were just extremely focused on throwing a ball 60 miles per hour to their partner. And we just talked a little bit and I just watched and I just started to understand that I said, well, what are you doing when you're throwing sliders at 52 miles per hour? And like, like, how does that help you for a game? And they're like, I'm trying to I'm trying to feel the ball catch off my fingertips in the same way that it catches off my fingertips when I throw it in a game. He's like, even though I'm throwing it slower, I know that it feels a certain way when it leaves my fingertips. That's going to be the exact same way when I'm in a game. So even though I'm not going to throw hard today before the game, because I might pitch tonight because relievers, you know, we're up every night. I'm looking for I'm looking for this. And I throw enough in pregame till I feel that with every one of my pitches. So with my fastball, I want to be right behind it, right on top of it, and have this nice crisp downhill trajectory. And on my slider, I want to feel it just catch just right there where I know I spun it right, and that's the sharp breaking version that I throw in the game. Or with my changeup, I want to feel it just roll off my fingertips, just off my middle finger, just in this certain way. And over time, when you play catch, and you're extremely focused on every throw that leaves your hand, you start to almost have like a Polaroid. It's almost like one of those amusement park uh, roller coasters where you're, you know, you're going down the big one and then the, uh, you know, the, the camera flashes when you hit that certain point and then they try to sell you that lame picture, right? So that's how I feel now after having learned from some of these guys and then started doing that myself and becoming very in tune with how did every single throw that I've ever made in my life since 2012 or whatever feel off of my hand. And so now every time I play catch, even with my lessons, when I'm just chucking a softball back at them or throwing a 32 mile per hour change up back to them as they're learning, I have like this snapshot. So my Polaroid, as soon as the ball leaves my hand, there's a Polaroid that goes snap, and I know exactly where my hand was in space. I know exactly how the ball felt off my fingertips. I know exactly how it's going to spin and what it's going to do before I even then pick the ball back up and watch it do what it does. I just became very in tune with how every pitch leaves my hand. And I know the archetype for each one. I know what my perfect changeup is supposed to feel like look like and break. Like when I throw it, it doesn't matter what speed it feels exactly the same at 30 miles per hour. Does fifty, fifties. It does at, at seventies. It does at 92, whatever, man, I wish I threw 92 mile per hour changeups. That'd be really cool. But you know, there's some people out there in the pitching world that say, Oh, you don't, you don't learn anything unless you throw it at full speed. Like, you know, if you're throwing slower than full speed, it's not going to have any carryover into the game. Like you have to develop your off speed stuff at full speed. And that just simply isn't true. Um, and I'm not going to like pick on other people, but it just isn't true. When you're highly in tune with your body, you develop a skill that scales. So being in tune with your body, it scales from 50 miles per hour to hundred miles per hour, whatever. It's just like riding a bike. You wouldn't learn to ride a bike going down a hill. You know you'd crash you'd wipe out every time and you'd eventually give up and you'd say i don't know i can't do this and i've had guys who are good pitchers come in and they can't feel a breaking ball they can't make an adjustment they can't develop their slider or their curveball because they can't feel it because they've never taken the time to listen to the way the ball comes off their fingertips and the way they feel through it and it's something that is taken for granted but it has to be developed at lower speed because you can't, you can't just learn a new pitch and throw it as hard as you can, and then try to dissect where your hand exactly should be in space. You learn that at slower speeds and then it applies itself at higher speeds. So as far as where command comes from, I think it comes from all of those three factors. I think it comes from being repeatable. If you're doing the wrong, like you should have a routine that every time you touch a ball and I yell at my 14 year guys, cause I'm the head coach of a 14 year team. And I yell at them consistently. If they, if I see them pick up a ball and they just wing it to their partner, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's an outfielder. I don't care if it's one of, they need to throw with a purpose every time they touch a ball. And if not, they can just go sit back down because every throw is important. And we have a ticking clock. We have 10,000 throws per year. You know, if you throw 50 throws a day on average during the in season, and then a certain amount to the off season, you'll throw about 10,000 a year and you're not going to get a lot more than that you have to squeeze as much value out of every throw as possible so your routine the drills that you do that help smooth your mechanics out and perfect them over time the drills that you do when you're playing catch all those drills those help to help you become more repeatable in a positive way they help fix your mechanical flaws and if we're not doing them consistently then we're not getting better consistently and if we're not working through our mechanics enough like every time like yesterday we had practice we did a flat ground for all the guys who weren't going to throw live that day They just got 15 throws at 40 miles per hour with their partner squatting down. So they got to throw downhill. They got to throw all their pitches to different kneecaps. So they went left kneecap, right kneecap, fast change. And they got to work on just a couple more times, repeating their mechanics, focusing on spots, being downhill, catching their chain up just right. So they got a little work just being repeatable. So being repeatable is huge. And the way that you become more repeatable is by having a dedicated routine where you do the same things that benefit you every day. So that means there's a handful of drills that you do that help keep you on track. And then you have your mechanics. So you always throw from the slide step, from the wind-up, whatever. So my pregame routine was I have a couple of drills that you might not know what they are, but these are the terms that I use for them. I started with... Three reverse throws just help loosen my upper body up, my flexibility. I did about five square hips throws, where my lower body stays fixed to my target and my upper body rotates. I did about six or eight rocker, rocker drill throws, and then I would back up. I would do the heel toe drill, which is one of my favorites, where you kind of lift your front leg out in front of you, just kind of like heel to toe, and then you push your hip towards your target, and you know work on your kind of energy angle, your hip lead towards the Towards the plate, I do maybe six or eight of those. Then I started to back up, and I go through my mechanics. After that, it was pretty much all I go from the slide step. Since I was a reliever my last couple years, every throw would be from uh, the slide step, and because that's what I was going to use in the game. When I got really far, I didn't stretch it out very far. So if I got to like 150 feet, I would just do like a pitcher's crow hop, where I lift my leg and then hop, and then kind of go through it. And then I'd come back in, and I'd go through the slide step again my partner would get down, I'd do a ten pitch flat ground, fifteen pitch flat ground. So I'd throw a curveball middle, change up middle, fastball middle, curveball to glove side of the plate and to the middle of the plate, change up to the middle of the plate to the arm side of the plate, and then fastballs to the bottom of the kneecap on both corners of the plate. So those are the that was sort of my routine and then I'd throw my cutter only to my glove side of the plate. So that was what I did every single day and the routine was important. All those drills that I did had a purpose and I went through my slide step because that was what I used in a game. Every single throw when I wasn't doing a drill and obviously that had a purpose. of just keeping me on track, keeping me from, from developing any rust or any moss and beyond that, every single throw, I wanted to be perfect. Every single throw, if it didn't come off my fingertips, perfect. I was a little bit irritated about it. And the next one had to be a little bit better. So that is sort of the standard for developing more command i don't know there's anything else more to it than that when you do those things the target alignment stuff that to me i use that as a cue a lot and i tell kids hey like everything's arm side you just need to stay on your front shoulder longer and then when you kind of feel that front that front foot hit your center of your chest push it towards your target take your chest to your target and it fixes them pretty fast i mean it works pretty well most problems In in just mechanical problems are because their front side is a little weak So they just kind of coast through it and the ball stays up or they yank too hard and they fly open Uh, I mean, those are the kind of the big ones where the arm gets kind of laggy behind and it doesn't get on top of the ball to Drive it down the zone So that in a nutshell is how you get better command I don't think throwing to targets indoors is what develops better command I do not think that's what it is because when you go out in a game you're not throwing to targets you're throwing to a catcher right and that's not the only reason behind it the big thing is about understanding the feel if you want to throw to targets and that's just where your eyes go and then you're doing all the stuff that I talked about as far as being repeatable aligning and then feeling your hand on every single pitch then fine that can be just your visual focal point but I don't think this idea of like, Oh, let's make it. This target practice is really the way to better command. I don't think there's any shortcut to better command. I think it's a strong connection between your body and your mind, because when you, you do at every level of baseball, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast has seen some little league kid who just freaking throws strikes. Right. And it wasn't because he did something weird. It's because he's got a very high connection between his mind and his body. And I think that can be it can be taught it can be learned by everyone and just like athleticism just like your genetics everything has a different starting point so we have a couple of kids in our program like that who just throw strikes you didn't have to teach them it their mechanics aren't better than other guys they just throw strikes so it's not just one of those things but there's a couple ways as we kind of wrap up here knowing how to get back on track and what things will get us off track. So here's the thing. I see tons of pitchers also who have good enough mechanics, the standard to throw enough strikes to be a valuable pitcher to your team. Isn't that high? You just need to have pretty good mechanics. You don't need to have the world's best mechanics. When you're not throwing enough strikes, if you're throwing, you know, say you're walking three batters per nine innings, you don't need more pitching lessons with me to improve your mechanics to get down to 2.5 walks. It's not like your mechanics continue to get better. Clayton Kershaw's mechanics, I don't think have changed much, but his command has gotten was already great and has gotten even better every single season. And it's completely, I'm sure, just mental factors. He just is more convicted, is more in tune with his body every year that he plays. The more experience that he gets, the more comfortable he gets at the major league level. right? So when you see things like this, it's not that he's, oh, let's let's fix this rusty screw. It's not, again, we're not pitching machines. There's nothing to, there's nothing to put grease on. There's nothing to, to tighten. There's nothing to loosen. There's nothing to weld, you know, shut or to gusset or to fix. We're not machines. It ultimately is going to boil down to, to, to your mind and the connection that you build and the focus that you put in each pitch. And you see this, I mean, I have so many parents that will come and talk to me about, Hey, my son just imploded the other day. And this is a kid I've worked with all winter and he walked like, you know, six batters and again two innings or something I'm like well it's in his it's between his ears you know I mean his mechanics are good enough he pounds the strike zone all day when we're in lessons but when you put a hitter in there everything changes right and that's where experience matters and I talked to a young man recently who was talking to me about taking a gap year uh, to not pitch and he wanted to really just focus on training and throwing harder and all this stuff and I urged him to think about the potential consequences of not pitching for so long because you lose all that stuff. You lose the experience of repeating your delivery, of repeating your delivery under pressure, of choosing the right pitches, of reading hitters. There's so much involved in pitching and all that stuff factors in. When you see too many guys who focus too much on velocity or they're not pitching enough innings, they don't have that. So now, oh, I'm really good at throwing the ball into the wall, but when you put me out there with hitters, I'm focused 100% on throwing it as hard as I can and I'm also nervous because there's hitters in there, whether you're consciously nervous or subconsciously nervous, doesn't matter. Uh, and now I just can't throw strikes at all. And that's extremely common, I think, now more than ever, where pitchers are so consumed by their velocity, they're consciously telling themselves, all right, you're going to throw this one, 89 on this one. And then they look at the radar gun, if there's a radar gun out there after one, oh, man, that was only 87. I got to throw this one harder. Like, I got to throw everyone at 88 or 89 we don't have enough bandwidth to then do all of the other stuff that I just talked about as far as focusing on your hand position, your body, all that stuff, connecting with the strike zone and the mitt, visualizing the pitch as it leads your hand. That's the other thing that I haven't mentioned is that on every pitch that I pick, there's a quick like visualization of what the hitter does and the tunnel that that ball takes out of my hand. So when I, I choose, all right, like it's one and one I want to go fastball inside I briefly have like, just like the, again, the Polaroid camera again, just goes snap. And there's like a this brief image of what I think is going to happen. And I'll talk about that in a subsequent podcast, but you know, what I think is going to happen and where I see that pitch going. So I have like this brief, you know, just like in a, in a horror movie where people have like flashbacks or flash forwards of like, ah, you know, that frightening, you know, that scary guy or whatever, but <laughs> that scary guy. But, uh, you know what I mean? So I, I, have, I have a snapshot of what I want that pitch to be and how the hitter reacts to it. And so we have to have that connection to it. If you're just throwing a ball in, into a wall and doors or a target practice, that's so far away from, A, a catcher, and, B, using your eyes properly for a catcher, and, C, visualizing those, those responses to your pitches. Because the more comfortable you get with responses, the less you fear the consequences as well. Every pitch that I chose, I expected to get a bad swing on. I expected to get an out on. I expected something good to happen. When I see that hitter flailing at my inside fastball and getting jammed, it makes me confident that's the reality that I'm about to create for myself. So I'm not afraid. Whereas when you see hitters driving the ball into the gap, it's pretty hard to throw that next pitch, right? Because that's what you just saw. That's like what's foretold is about to happen. So... When we get afraid on the mound, and this happens all the time, and I can remember, I can't remember exactly what situation it was, but anytime you're in the base, we have the bases loaded and less than two outs, especially with no outs, you just have this level of panic. And because you know, you can't walk a guy, you know, that if he swings and he puts him in the gap, at least two runs are scoring, you know, a single scoring two runs, you know, a single is going to continue this bases loaded carousel nightmare and there's just so many bad consequences like you want to start chipping away right away but you know if he swings the bat so many terrible things can happen and I just remember feeling this impending doom and how I just remember I don't remember this exact situation it probably wasn't even that important but I just remember taking this deep breath and like all right we're gonna get through this but we're not gonna get through this until we throw a first pitch strike we have to get the first strike and then we can start to get through this it's just like picking up your axe the first strike is like picking up your axe and then you can start chipping away with it so that first one's scary because you have to get ahead you can't go to the corner on the first pitch because again would i rather throw a first pitch down the middle with the bases loaded or rather throw this a 1-0 pitch down the middle with the bases loaded definitely the first pitch so for me i just kind of like well here goes nothing i take a deep breath <sighs> And then I just ram it down the middle as hard as I can freaking throw it. And if I get ahead, it's a huge load off my shoulders because now that guy's pretty much screwed because now I'm going to hit one of the next two spots. I'm going to be one and two, and then I'm going to finish him off. I'm going to get weak contact. I'm going to jam with a fastball. I'm going to punch him out with a curveball, whatever it is. It's going to be my game once I get ahead of the count. So once I get ahead in the count there, then all those visual outcomes become positive for me. I get ahead, I get through that scary first pitch, and now I see myself jamming him on a good inside fastball on the next one. I see him swinging and missing like a chump on a good curveball on the next one. I see him swinging way late at another fastball that I just pumped by him, right? I start to see my way out. But when we have that fight or flight response, and we flee, and I felt it myself, because years ago, my first outing as a sophomore, I was so excited, I worked so hard, my first two years in college to hopefully win the number five spot and be a weekend starter and uh I was piggybacking so that meant I was splitting a game with another starter and I was the second to come in and I just like I was so pumped I put in the work I was ready to start being successful as a division one pitcher and I went out there and I like walked two batters I came in with two outs uh to relieve my friend and I came with two outs and I like walked two guys and I got a, a pop-up like it was a not a great start and I went back out for the next inning I think I walked two or three batters I looked at the box score a couple of weeks ago because I think I told this story but uh, I walked like two or three batters and then I got yanked and it haunted me like I I every time I tried into a new game I was nervous that I was gonna go out there and walk the first three hitters and walk the bases loaded and uh, I don't know that that's the moment that I that that became a major fear i might have had that fear before that i don't really remember but if i didn't at that point that was when it came to fruition but um it was uh that was a moment where i remember i was in a new position you know i was where i was i was in a new i wasn't experienced enough to feel comfortable we were in william and mary you know i was suddenly vaulted to the higher end of the depth chart i was expected to do things all my teammates were watching me all the other team they were a good team. They were watching and I had to compete and I got out there and I threw the first two pitches. There were balls and it was two. I was like, Oh God, I can't throw another ball. And that was the moment where you either fight or you flee. And I fled and I just felt like the blood drain out of my head. And I felt it drain out of my arms and I felt it just drain in this little puddle on the mound. And then I couldn't throw a ball anywhere in the strike zone. And I, I remarked this on Twitter recently How is it possible? Like the strike zone is the most immediate thing in front of us. Like if you just close your eyes and throw a ball, it would go, I mean, it it would go towards the strikes. Like that's the thing right in front of you. So, but yet somehow your body has this miraculous ability to throw it all over on all over the peripheral of the plate. You'll throw it everywhere, but except right in front of you. It's, it's baffling that you could throw it and not hit the side of a barn. When you're nervous, you know, when you're fleeing, when you have that fight or flight and you flee, uh, you think it'd just be the opposite. You just start like chucking them down the middle of the plate. I don't know. But anyway, uh, we've all been there and we get nervous and we panic and we back off and we come less aggressive and we just start to ease off. We try to guide it in there. We try to throw darts and it just becomes a nightmare. So. We've all been there. It's never a good situation. We have to be mentally tough. We have to pitch with conviction. We have to pitch with competition in us. We have to be aggressive to our spot. So it's not about hitting your spot. And I see a lot of young pitchers fail in that sense too. They they try to hit their spot. They try to be so fine and they try to control everything that they end up missing too. It's about picking your spot and then punching that spot in the face. It's about really being really aggressive to do the things that we want to do. So even though you're trying to like dissect a guy, you still throw every pitch as if you're trying to kind of throw it by him, but to the spot. And, uh, you know, and that's sort of how we go about that. But, you know, control is a very difficult thing to teach. It's a very difficult thing to improve because there isn't a plan. There isn't, I can't say, Hey, do three sets of this, do three sets of that, do three sets of that. It just isn't that way. Um, maybe in the future there'll be some sort of like virtual reality, but for now, I think the biggest virtual reality is, is meditation. When I started meditating in 2011 and into 2012, it changed me for the better because I sat down and I watched myself being successful. Once I got clear enough to visualize, I would sit there and it was almost like playing my own video game for a couple hours. So I would sit there, well, a couple hours a week, I'd usually do about 30 minutes a day, but I sat there and I, I, visualized those same outcomes. So, all right, here I am in Evansville, Indiana, I'm on the mound. It's a three, one count with the bases loaded and I'm choosing to throw a change up and I feel the nervousness flow through my body, but then I execute that change up and then I do it again and then I do it again. And now a week or two later, I no longer feel nervous when I'm in that same situation and I pick three, one changeup. I just feel relaxed. And then I just execute it the same way I have every single time for the last two weeks. It's like getting extra practice in your head. And when you know for a fact that you do that same thing on the mound, when I choose a pitch in real life, I have that quick visualization. I see the pitch. I see the way it, I see its flight, just like, you know, a bullet with a tracer. I watch it curve in and I watch the hitter swing. That moment of visualization is there in real life and in meditation. So I think they go hand in hand when someone has a mental practice like that. So when you sit down and you see yourself in tough situations and then you see yourself executing like a badass, you know, it, it can pay dividends in the long run because you're, you're developing that same thing. You're developing that. You're helping your body become more in tune with your mind. And that's what you have to do to throw strikes at the end of the day. We're not pitching machines there isn't a physical exercise program to get you to become a guy with great command and especially great command under pressure, right? You see a guy like Madison Mumgardner, how focused was he in the world? Series? you know, when he's placed in a world series, I mean, he's incredible, right? And that's because he fights, he doesn't flee number one and his focus, whatever he's naturally good at is just heightened by the pressure that he thrives off it, that he gets more in tune with his body and that he's more focused on, I cannot let my hands slip to the side of the ball on the slider. I must get my fingers to the front of the slider. I have to hit my spot. It's not I want to hit my spot. It's I will hit my spot. My team needs me. This is the World Series. Some guys are like that. I mean, he's an incredible player to watch. So, All right. This ended up being pretty long, but I think pretty thorough. So, If you have any questions anything you'd like me to discuss on this podcast i'm always open so shoot me an email uh leave a comment on my blog message me or send me a you know comment on on facebook instagram twitter whatever but you know i'd love to help uh, troubleshoot if there's something out there that you need help on all right so be feel uh feel free to check me out on social media i'm on pinterest i'm on twitter i'm on facebook i'm on instagram don't forget that my book, Pitching Isn't Complicated, is on Amazon and my online courses, Ace of the Staff, you can find at courses.damblut.com. I still have two free courses, Ace of the Staff Light and How to Throw a Filthy Change-Up. And my Changeup course, I'll let you know now, is going to go away soon. It's going to become a paid course in conjunction with uh, some other, um, a, a second course on how to throw a good a good curveball. So Those aren't going to be available that much longer. It's going to sort of evolve as a lot of my online stuff is evolving and look forward soon to pitching isn't complicated the course, which I'm really excited about, which is basically me saying, this is exactly how I would analyze you as a pitcher. If you came into my facility, I'm going to give you a step-by-step of how to analyze your mechanics. And I'm going to tell you exactly what drills correspond to each flaw that you pick out from the analysis that I help you do. And then I'm going to show you how to make a routine so that you can go through your daily life as a pitcher and every single day, this is what you're gonna do. And then we're gonna re re-evaluate your mechanics. We're gonna say, okay, you fixed problem A and problem B. And we found we're gonna now start to work on problem E and F. And here's the new drills for E and F. Here's how you fold them right into your plan. Then you keep going. Cause pitching is a constant evaluation reevaluation and just continuing to fine tune you over time. So check out those in the future. If you're not on my email list, um make sure you jump on that and I'll keep sure uh be sure to update you along the way all right have a great uh great week and we'll catch you next week on Dear Baseball Gods